I think it's kind of possible to have heard of it or have been there a little bit and not really have much of a sense of the region. In a way, you can kind of drive through it and kind of shrug and say, uh, it's another forest. From NCPR, this is Northwards. People, ideas, and conversations from and about northern New York, Vermont, and beyond. I'm Mitch Tyke. Support of the Northwards podcast comes from Joe Steiniger and Mary McDonald in support of the Adirondack Foundation, building stronger Adirondack communities. A lot of folks take selfies in front of signs at landmarks. You ever stop for a picture in front of the Welcome to Canada sign or Welcome to Yellowstone or Grand Canyon National Park? But what about a photo in front of the sign marking an entrance to the Adirondack Park? Do you ever see people pulled over on Highway 56 or 458 or US 9? The blue line encompasses an area larger than some states, yet the Adirondacks hold a different place in the hearts and minds of Americans than other great natural places. Writer Matt Delos wondered how the Adirondacks acquired the mystique they maintain for some people, and more broadly, what makes them unique. His new book is a series of dispatches about the region called In the Adirondacks, and he joins us on the line to talk about it. Welcome to Northwards. Thanks so much for having me. What was it that originally captivated you about the Adirondacks? Oh, it's such a good question because I feel like I originally had this engagement with the Adirondacks when I was relatively young. I kind of had heard of the Adirondacks, but I'd never really been there. And, you know, you kind of have this idea of places from afar and they're never really at all what you think they're going to end up being. And then I think that kind of sat there and I didn't really think much about it for a long time. And then all of a sudden I kind of find myself going back there. Like I kind of travel through the edge with some friends and then I kind of just get this growing interest. And I just kind of became fascinated with this idea of what I once thought it was and what it actually might be. Do you think that's a almost a proxy for for the way the, the country kind of sees the Adirondacks? I mean, I kind of see how the country sees the Adirondacks as almost like this wild west frontier in a way, right? <laughs> like, I mean, there's this idea of it being six million acres of wilderness, which is um, like it's kind of a ridiculous thing. And yet I think it's so prominent that you can often be in the Adirondacks looking at a small town and be like, yes, I'm in the wilderness. So it's a little different maybe, but maybe there's that kind of level of refinement that gradually getting to know it in a way. I, I gather when it came to writing the uh, the dispatches that make up this book, there was there's plenty of research in the Adirondack Experience archives. But you also spent a lot of time in places like souvenir shops and and tourist traps and 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 on hiking trails. Why was that part of your research important to this? I take a really broad definition of what might be a document that would inform a, a history or kind of a contemporary take on the Adirondacks. And I, I think places like souvenir shops are absolutely fascinating. I mean, what do we actually make of a souvenir shop that has an entire aisle dedicated to loon knickknacks? I mean, to <laughs> me, that's just a fascinating cultural object of like, what does this place mean and what value can we find in it? And you know, I think even maybe more important than that, like, what are the stories that we can kind of find by looking beyond kind of to like non-traditional sources in a way. What were you hoping to accomplish or what are you hoping to accomplish through sharing these views with, with the people who will read this book? Yeah, I, I think maybe, um, I guess if we're talking about audience, maybe there are a couple different audiences who might sort of read this. I think there are a lot of people out there who have heard of the Adirondacks. They've maybe driven through it. They've maybe spent a night in Old Forge or Lake Placid. But I, I think it's kind of possible to have heard of it or have been there a little bit and not really have much of a sense of the region. In, in a way, you can kind of drive through it and kind of shrug and say, uh, it's another forest. 
And, and I think for those people who kind of have at least heard of the Adirondacks before, it's kind of a bit of a, a primer, this kind of like engaging, lively way to get to know the region. Um, right. And, and I think to kind of start to see a little bit of the complexity of the region through the stories that I tell. Um, but I think at a different level, for those of you who have kind of um, have a deeper engagement with the place, who have spent time there, who have grown up going to camp or who own a camp and go up there regularly or who live there, it's kind of an opportunity to take a step back and kind of see this idea of the Adirondacks um, kind of with a wider perspective. Like, What is its role in American culture, whatever that might exactly mean? Um, Right. Like, how do we kind of prop up this idea of the Adirondacks in various ways? And like, how can we be kind of appreciative of it, but also maybe kind of critical of what we've done with it? You used the term earlier, uh, Wild West. Uh, what do you think has historically set the Adirondacks apart uh, from other parts of the country that also kind of have this outdoors mystique, places like the Rockies or the desert southwest, which which might you know be the real Wild West? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, I think part of it just has to be geography, right? I mean, it's proximity to so many people. And and I think with that proximity, I mean, as soon as you start having trains that go there, it's relatively easy to get there. So you have a, a lot of kind of the shuttling back and forth. And I, I think it kind of just builds almost this cultural momentum in that like, a friend goes and the friend tells you about it, right? This gradually kind of accumulates and becomes significant. I mean, I think also if you look at the way people have titled books or paintings, I mean, every single one of those that is titled in the Adirondacks or the Adirondacks or sunset on an Adirondack lake, right? You're just kind of gradually building this this idea. It's also like a very defined physical realm, right? I mean, when you drive into the Adirondacks, you're crossing this boundary to actually enter the park. But but you're actually kind of shifting the ecology that you're within, right? You see this world that looks different from the lower elevations. And so it's not only just that you've crossed a line, it's that the lake looks and smells different. It's that the water's a different temperature. If you go up in April and May, it might actually feel like late winter, not early spring. It's um, right. There's actually that very kind of physical element to it as well. I thought it was interesting. You make the point, and I had never considered it in exactly these terms, but uh, but it's a good point that, uh, you know, there are so many signs that show you where you're crossing the blue line. Welcome to the Adirondack Park. And yet you never do see people standing there posing in front of that sign the way they do in front of the sign that, you know, goes into the Grand Canyon or Yosemite or, or Yellowstone. Yeah, it's interesting, right? <laughs> you would think, I mean, I think I said this in the book, but it would be like you, you see those signs and like the grass is actually worn down next to the sign. Like so many people have stopped and like we just haven't quite yet put that value on crossing into the Adirondacks yet, I think. And it is kind of like a recent invention, right? I mean, the, the boundaries of the Adirondacks were kind of poorly defined until like, I mean, not actually poorly defined on a map, but like poorly defined as most people saw them until the 60s and 70s, right? And it's a pretty recent phenomenon that we have this kind of absolutely defined, <laughs> I'm in the Adirondacks, I'm not in the Adirondacks. <laughs> You do write uh, in many places about the Adirondack look. I'll put it in mm -hmm. air quotes here. Um, the the particular juxtapositioning of trees and lakes and landscape. How would you describe what that Adirondack look is? Yeah, I mean, I would first of all say that it seems like it's kind of shape shifting. I mentioned that it kind of like changes depending on the weather. Like there are places that could be foggy and look like the Adirondacks, and they're sunny and they they don't. I think again, it's pointing to sort of those um, those more northerly species, right? I mean, if you think about the Adirondacks as kind of this this defined physical region, like it does have a different geology, and so it has different species as well. Like even the water color is different, um, right? It's it's pines, it's spruce, it's that dark tannic water. I, I mean, I would say it's even the way that like the water flows over the rocks, right? It looks different than it does in Utica. It's, it's much different. <laughs> well, and and also the 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 siding on buildings that you write about. 
you're right. And it's not just kind of these ecological ecological factors. It's these cultural ones that kind of build off of those ecological ones, right? Like we, we would see maybe um, brainstorm siding of kind of like the rustic edge being a little bit out of place in New York City. In the Adirondacks, it just kind of makes sense. And to me, that's kind of a particularly interesting place to kind of dig in and find a history. Like where does it make sense and why? So why would you contend it's important to consider the examples of, of the Adirondacks today in the context of all the other natural places in the U.S.? Yeah. Um, again, I think kind of a couple different angles on this. I think, first of all, I see a lot of value of kind of considering sort of specific and kind of immersive histories of regions. Right. I think there's a lot to learn from those examples. Um, and, and I also think it's worthwhile to kind of consider sort of histories that didn't happen across a national stage. I mean, the model of the Adirondacks, as far as its preservation, conservation, however you want to label it, it didn't happen everywhere, right? We don't have these large parks that kind of mingle human communities and natural natural communities. And like, so it's kind of worthwhile to ask, what if that had happened? What if this was the model? What if we didn't have Yellowstone, but we had a broader Yellowstone region that encompassed more complexity than it does? How significant do you think is the is the forever wild concept in, in shaping both the past and also the present of the Adirondacks? Yeah, it, it's it's a pretty complex one, right? I mean, I think what to me is particularly interesting is how people have kind of held on to that idea as being something that's pretty permanent. And we kind of think it today as like forever wild being almost in a way like wilderness, right? That's like the rise of wilderness areas in the park during the whole APA thing. Um but yeah, I think it, it could be this more slightly malleable category, right? Because it's really like we're defining an ethic. What is it that we can do on this land in that place? And we've kind of recently at least defined Forever Wild as we can do absolutely nothing to that. And yet, I mean, to, for the most part, but I mean, that wasn't always the case, right? It was a little bit more flexible back in the early 20th century and late 19th century. Well, and, and there is an inherent irony about, you know, the idea of a of a a human designated wilderness because you know the the wilderness only exists because humans say say it's wilderness. Yeah, exactly right. It's it's all policy in in a way, right? It's all the decision. It's all an artifact. Um, I'm especially interested to have you talk about your attitude towards the southeastern part of the Adirondack Park, Lake George, and the area around it, because it is it is a different brand of the park, if you will, than uh, than what you experience in like Inlet or the High Peaks, or um, yeah. but you write with a lot of affection for Lake George. Eventually, right? Yeah, I, I yeah, get yeah well, right. To kind of like <laughs> at first, I'm kind of wondering why in the world have I come to this town that in that moment is kind of feeling like the Las Vegas of the Adirondacks and like, why am I here? Why did I not go to a wilderness lake? And I, I mean, I think that's kind of all part of my process of really getting to know this place and not just kind of sticking to the original idea of what I thought it should be. I mean, I think if you can come to appreciate Lake George as some sort of essential part of what the Adirondacks actually means today, like I think we're probably all better for it, right? <laughs> it's kind of good to have that diversity to be able to see why that place can matter in this this region's history. Did you feel in some ways like, um, you know, a, a in in a you know in maybe a, a sociological way and explorer um, when you set about to put this book together? I don't know that I would have ever used kind of the word explorer for it. I mean, to <laughs> me, I was kind of this this out of town or kind of bumbling through the region, kind of seeing what I could learn. <laughs> well, that's an and explorer, it, right? <laughs> yeah, of a sort. You're, you're right. It's um, and you know, I would take these kind of meandering drives to the region. I would say like, okay, you know, I'm going to start in Old Forge and I'm going to drive to the High Peaks and then back through Lake George and, and come back. And it was only really later that I guess after I had done a few of those drives that I sort of um, began then to really dig into Adirondack literature and kind of 
really start to get a lot of know, to know these stories and get to know what other people had written and kind of develop my understanding as I went went through them. Were there some kind of long lasting surprises that came out of this project for you? Yeah, you know, I think one is um, when I started kind of doing my field research on this book or driving around. Um, I it had never really occurred to me that I might want to have a boat. It's just like coming from someplace that doesn't have lakes and doesn't have rivers. I was like, I wouldn't need a boat, right? I can walk, I can drive. And I think just having that realization um, kind of made me much more aware of the importance of water in the history of the Adirondacks and kind of much more like I was able to actually visit some of these places that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to see, right? I mean, the opportunity to kind of thread my way up through a boreal stream is just something that I would have never gotten on a roadside. And it just kind of continues to surprise me. And of course, then there's that whole history of guideboats and lightweight canoes, which is about opening up the wilderness to more people. And so like that history kind of cascaded from that realization. One of the earliest anecdotes that you relate in this book uh, comes when you're a, a kind of a roadside diner in uh, in Tupper Lake and you overhear some uh, some young people talking about how they really hope to to get out of there. And and you write about what your feelings about that were as it was as that conversation was going on. Do you think you know uh, however many months and years on into into this project you have a different understanding or a different appreciation for for what they were talking about? Yeah, I think I think as powerful as the identity and kind of the presence of the Adirondacks is, it doesn't have quite have the power to overcome some of the problems of rural America, right? And I, I, I can see why it wouldn't be enough. Right. I, I think from an outsider's perspective, I mean, I was I was standing there and I'm like, look, I can go to this wilderness area in 20 minutes and I can go to this canoe wilderness area in 20 minutes. But that really kind of doesn't at all reflect the lived experience of that place. And right, this is one of, I think, looking to the future, one of the serious problems of the Adirondacks is like, it's wonderful that we see it as a wilderness. It's wonderful that we see it as this retreat from the modern world. But like, how does it become a much more livable place? And obviously there are people who are much more informed on these issues currently working on this and trying to figure out how it is that you revive some of these towns so that um, younger people actually want to stay there. All right. So so it is just you and me and our listeners at this point. Um, mm -hmm. So I have to ask, what is your wife's secret loon name for an Adirondack camp? I would never reveal ah. that. <laughs> It's too good. You'll just have to trust me that it's too good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and you know what? It probably already exists out there, but I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't. <laughs> if you don't Google it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, Matt Delos, it's a, it's, it's a really thought-provoking and, uh, and such a well-written book. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed having our talk. Matt Delos is the author of In the Adirondacks, Dispatches from the Largest Park in the Lower 48. We reached him in the Finger Lakes where he teaches and is a Ph.D. candidate at Cornell University. I'm Mitch Tyke. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Northwards. You can catch new interviews every Friday right here or wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about North Country Public Radio's shows at ncpr.org. Northwards is an NCPR podcast production. The program is written, recorded, and edited by Mitch Tyke with digital production supervision by me, Ethan Shanty. Music by the Wickmore Jazz Trio of Plattsburgh. To support this show and find more podcasts, visit ncpr.org. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio.